The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. If you like listening to Warriors in Their Own Words, check out our other show, the Medal of Honor podcast. The link is in the show description. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Warriors in Their Own Words. In partnership with The Honor Project, we've brought this podcast back at a time when our nation needs these stories more than ever. Warriors in Their Own Words is our attempt to present an unvarnished, unsanitized truth of what we have asked of those who defend this nation. Thank you for listening, and by doing so, honoring those who have served. Today, we'll hear from Captain Lauren B. Morgan, MD. Morgan served as a battalion surgeon and paratrooper in the Army during World War II. He fought in the Battle of the Bulge and at the Rhine River Crossing. We graduated from medical school in March of 1943. A group of us had already been in medical ROTC, so we were we were allowed to finish our nine months of internship, and then we were sent in January to Carlisle Medical Barracks, which is in Pennsylvania. Those of us that were in the Army, those of us that had been in ROTC had been there in the summer of 41 before Pearl Harbor, but we all went again and took the same course. It's a six-week course in basic training. And from there, we were sent to a, a large Army General Hospital. I was sent to Lawson General Hospital in Atlanta because I had volunteered for the paratroops, and the, there was no room at uh, Fort Benning at that time, so I spent six weeks there. Incidentally, was in charge of three orthopedic wards with all all the patients had been hurt in parachute school. They all had broken arms and legs and necks and so forth from jumping. Well, after jump school, I was sent to the 17th Airborne Division in Camp Forest, Tennessee. I was assigned to the 466 Parachute Field Artillery Battalion as the battalion surgeon. We did maneuvers throughout the Tennessee hills, and then in August of 44, we went to Europe. We were in England for training when the Battle of the Bulge broke out, and on Christmas Day of 44, we were in the Battle of the Bulge. We ended up about six miles west of Bastogne, the 101st Airborne was surrounded in Bastogne, and we were trying to break in to, to get them out. We never did, by the way. We ran into a German panzer division that had been west of Bastogne and turned around and tried to break back in from that side. 
and we lost 2,000 men in three days. Being paratroopers, we had the light carbines. We had the 75-millimeter howitzers. We didn't have any big guns, and we didn't have any transportation, really. We were on our, on our feet in deep snow and so forth, but we, we did a good job of stopping the panzers finally. But we uh, went on past Bastogne, up to Hoofalese, and on farther east. And as you know, Patton broke into Bastogne from the south and relieved the 101st. But we fought about 45 days in the Battle of the Bulge. We had uh, pretty... Uh, Severe casualties, of course, plus the weather and the frostbite and the trench foot and the whole package. Well, our introduction to the Battle of the Bulge is we were walking in to the place we were going to set up our, our guns, and an airborne, I mean, a a tank unit was moving out, going the other way. And we kind of scratched our head and wondered what what kind of sense that made, that we were walking in, we had no vehicles, and uh, here's the big tanks going the other way. As soon as we got up over the hill, we could see the German tanks were all lined up on the other side of the hill. They were running for it, and we were walking into this mess, and that's when we got so many casualties. As we were walking in, their artillery shells were going over and the, the tanks were firing away their 88s that they have on them. And we were ducking for cover. Finally found a schoolhouse to settle in. And we, we were usually with the battalion CP. It just worked that way. It worked better for us to be at where we knew what was going on, and and it worked out very well that we set up our aid station with them. There wasn't any small arms fire when we came in. But the infantry was involved in the small arms fire up ahead of us a couple hundred yards. This went on for 45 days. We were there without relief. When we could, we moved north and east, but we were in constant combat for those 45 days. Mostly those were small arms wounds, so we didn't have the big ones that we had when we parachuted. We had extremities. We had uh, lots of uh, gunshot wounds to the legs and arms. I don't remember seeing a sucking chest wound there, but because uh, this was mostly rifle fire. And uh, besides the the uh, weather, you know, it was horrible. We had a lot of frozen feet and frozen hands and and trench foot, and because there was no there was no way for sanitation, there were no showers or dry clothes. We had just what we carried in with us. In peacetime, it's a tent. In wartime, it's any hole you can find. 
in our experience, we always were in a building of some kind, a schoolhouse or a, any shelter we could get. And I was the doctor, and I had five men with me, two or three of them very well trained, and the rest of them trained by me. And then I had two men in each battery. In the infantry, they were, of course, in the company, but in the artillery, they were in the battery. We had two aid men there, and they were with, they were right up with the troops all the time. And we were, and we had jeeps and one ambulance to take the men from the field and back to our station and from there back to the division medical company. But uh, we in no way remember, resembled a MASH outfit, for instance. I mean, it was a, just a small first aid station is what it was. And we splinted wounds and stopped the bleeding and and uh, controlled the pain as best we could and got the patients out of shock. And we we're usually 100 yards or 200 yards back. and But we're the first doctor and we're the first really definitive treatment that they can get. Mostly, I was the the one giving the directions, and but these guys could do about what I could do, and they could they could sew up minor wounds, they could uh, put on splints, and they could transport people safely, and they were the world's greatest ENT men, emergency medical tech men that were ever invented. These guys were fantastic. They'd cover up the wound and tape it shut and give them some morphine to calm them down and get them back to where we could get some albumin in them and tighten the bandage. And in uh, civilian life, you put a tube in and get the air, get the vacuum real established, but you don't do that in combat. There were just two of them to the to the battery, so they had to get somebody to help them, either battery personnel or we had to go forward and with the litters and pick them up and bring them back. But there, there were no litter bearers, so to speak. We didn't have any. Some of the ground infantry regiments have litter bearers, that that's their job, but we never had any. We were just who we were. When they brought them back to us, we did what we could, and if possible, we'd put them on a jeep and take them back to a... The the division had a medical company, and they set up some kind of a more advanced thing than we had, and then the evacuation hospital was the where they really had their surgery and their repair of their fractures and so forth. But that was 20 miles back. Yeah, my men were were one of the boys. They were everybody that jumped out of an airplane was thought he was something special if he was or wasn't. And they were all real tough guys, you know, and they were always in perfect shape. And there was no difference between a medic and a rifleman or a cannoneer or a cook or any of them. They were all rugged, uh, beautifully physically fit people. 
which of course made my job easier because they, they were in good shape, all of them. We didn't have any real serious illnesses that some of the other units had with, but, uh, and they were well liked by everybody. For one thing, you know, we did practice parachuting and, and they were damn glad to see a medic when they broke their leg or broke their arm or had their neck snapped by the, by the shroud lines, you know, and so there were, in, in many of the units, uh, nobody was hurt until they got in the war, you know, until they got in the fighting. But we had guys hurt all the time. My men went through the combat course, you know, because before you go overseas, you crawl on your belly while they're shooting machine guns over your head and live ammunition and make-believe landmines are going off beside you. And, and you're... Th- you learn to throw a hand grenade, and they all did this. They were all ready to fight like anybody else, which they never did, but they were prepared to do that. Hello, everyone. My name is Tom Kearns, and I host the Anglo-Saxon England podcast, where I cover the history and culture of England from the departure of the Romans in the 5th century to the Norman Conquest in 1066. So far, we've surveyed the collapse of Roman rule in Britain, the migration of the Anglo-Saxons, and the history of Northumbria from its beginnings in the mists of legend to its destruction at the hands of Viking raiders in the 9th century. I hope you'll come and give it a go. Greetings from Evergreen Podcasts. We're rolling out a listener survey, and we want to hear from you. The information in the survey will help us gather statistics and in turn make our shows more appealing to advertisers. I know most people don't like ads, but this is one of the only ways our shows make money and help keep their lights on. We promise it will only take a few minutes, but the impact on our podcasts will be tremendous. As a token of our appreciation, we'll randomly select one lucky participant each month to win an exclusive merchandise package from Evergreen Podcasts. Head to evergreenpodcast.com slash listener survey to help a show and possibly get some free stuff for doing so. We can't thank you enough for the support. Now back to the show. When we jumped across the Rhine, I had two medics killed and four injured. I had two medics come in in gliders. All the rest of us parachuted in, but I had two men with gliders because we had our jeeps and a trailer full of all our supplies that we couldn't carry. And one of the gliders, the door locked, and the guy couldn't get out to, uh, I couldn't get the jeep out. He got out and he ran over and hit under the water. He jumped in a canal and hid because we were right in the midst of a battle. And the other jeep rider ran into the woods and got shot in the in the woods. And the, my other men were shot in the knees and thighs. They, they worked. They kept on working, the guys that were shot in the legs. But... Uh, we, and 
you know, we spread them out through the through the airplanes. I jumped with the colonel and one technician. We were the only two medics in the lead airplane. But all my rest of my men were one guy to an airplane. And those in the batteries were separated, so they weren't both on the same airplane. One of my medics was killed in the battery, the whole stick, as we call them. The 12 jumpers were all laid out in a string, and he was one of them that was dead. But, uh, see, we jumped uh, 350 men in our 466 Parachute Field Artillery Battalion, and we had 50 killed and 100 seriously wounded. In 20 minutes, I had 106 men in my aid station. And I had three crippled aid men. And uh, well, we, we had the British 6th Airborne jumped with us. There were 25,000 of us that jumped across the Rhine River. And 2,000 of them were killed. It was the biggest air armada that ever was or ever will be because they don't use gliders anymore. We had paratroopers and glidermen. And of course, my men were unbelievably great. They went right out in the field where the firing was going on. And some of them brought in the, the medical bundles that, that were on, you know, dropped from the airplanes. And all of us, I weighed 300 pounds when I jumped. I had, I weighed 180 and I had 120 pounds of equipment on me, mostly albumin, morphine, sulfa, bandages. Could hardly walk, you know, but uh, all of us were that way. And luckily, because as I told you, the one Jeep driver was killed and the other Jeep driver couldn't get his Jeep out. So it was, we jumped at 10.20 in the morning and it was two o'clock before we got our Jeeps. So we had to have equipment that we had on us. We had, Of course, we had some bundles. We had some bundles that had come in by parachute. But I, you know, I couldn't have been any more proud of them. They were wonderful guys. I, I, two of them I am, correspond with all the time. One of them is Steve Miladinovich from Pennsylvania. He was the man that went to... Um, rush medical school to the hospital for six months to train. The other one was Jim Leffler from Stuttgart, Arkansas. He was he was the Jeep driver who hid in the water, finally brought in my equipment in the afternoon. Super guys. All the rest of them were out with the units in the field and can't find any any of them anymore. Well, it was great chaos when they all came in, but we we had one thing going for us. In Germany, you know, a lot of the farmhouses have the barn attached to the house. This one did. We had a whole barn with no animals in it, and it was full of hay, and perfect place to put our wounded when we got them back in livable shape, 
We didn't lose one, by the way. Not one of them died in my station, which I'm very proud of. But we were, we could get them back there. We could keep them warm. We could get them hot liquids. We could give them intravenous fluid and run it all day long if we had to. And then the next day, the very next day, uh, evac hospital was set up about 400 yards from our aid station. So we were able to shuffle them over there one at a time. And, uh, Lots of them died in the field before we could get to them. And lots of them died in their parachutes hanging from the trees. Lots of them, hundreds of them got killed in the gliders. Man, that's a terrible way to go to war is in a glider. They crash, you know, a glider landing is a crash landing. There isn't such a thing as a glider landing. Lots of them came in in the big British Horsa gliders. British gliders are bigger than American gliders. They look more substantial, but they really aren't. They're just huge. And about the worst thing I saw, the, this glider made a pretty decent landing. It nosed over a little bit, but one by one, the doctors and nurses of the 4th Auxiliary Surgical Group, American doctors and nurses, came out of the door of this glider. They all had steel helmets with four red crosses, one in each quadrant. They had double armbands, armbands on both arms. And one by one as they came out the door, they, they were shot by the Germans. They killed the whole unit, which I suspect was 14 or 16 people. And I was right beside him, and there wasn't anything I could do about it. But watch. Well, that's the best way to, to win the war. The, the first thing to do is, is wound people. Don't kill them. That clogs up your, your evacuation system and keeps more people busy. The, once they kill somebody, then that, that episode's over, and... Once they wound somebody, then there's several people involved with trying to save them. And, of course, the more medics you can kill, the, the more wounded people aren't, aren't going to be taken care of. And, and then, of course, the, the um, don't know the word I want, the, it's demoralizing to the troops if they find out that their medical detachment's gone. This happened in Bastogne, by the way. The medical company of the 101st Airborne was captured and outside of Bastogne, and they were without their medical company, which certainly made it tough. Probably the, the only other tough thing that compares with watching that happen is seeing the paratroopers in the trees that are shot in the tree. That's, that's a terrible sight also. And I think I told you that we were being shot at with 20-millimeter anti-aircraft shells. As soon as we got on the ground, they leveled them and fired horizontally at us with these things. And that's why I got all the sucking chest wounds, because it's, you know, what a 20-millimeter is a dandy shell. The patient, gasping and nearly dead until you plug the hole, and then they come around pretty fast. 
because they uh, that lung doesn't function, but at least it's not leaking air. You take a breath in and it goes out, comes out into the atmosphere, you know. The other lung is working if it's not both of them. It's both of them, they're dead. But if it's, if it's just one, why? If you can get to them in time. And I had a couple of them out in the field and I was, I remember I got one of them in one of the holes where the gun had been. Incidentally found the, the general of General Phelps of the commanding general of the artillery. So I'm crouching behind the hedge, and I put him in the hole with this guy. Told him when he, when things settled down, to please take him over to that building because that's where we were going to have our aid station, which was an interesting thing. But I had the guy in pretty good shape by then, and he brought him into the aid station. Once you get the thing plugged and and give them something for pain, they and keep them quiet. They can usually get. We saved most of them. One of my favorite friends took this a 20 millimeter and we got him back together. He spent about two years in hospitals in the United States, but he lost part of his liver, part of his spleen, and had his sucking chest wound. For He's still an asthmatic and still in bad shape, but he's... 80-some years old now. By the way, I don't know if you're interested or not, but he can't get in an Army hospital or a VA hospital because he's so prosperous. He went out and became a, a farmer, good farmer and a good livestock raiser, and they, he's not eligible. After what he did for his country, he's not eligible. You have to be down and out and... Uh, or the friend of somebody to be admitted to these hospitals. As far as I'm concerned, they should have taken care of this guy the rest of his life. Whatever he wanted, he should have had, as far as I'm concerned. I didn't lose anybody at the station. We lost a lot of them out in the field that we didn't get to the station. Was that Another serious thing we had, we had a lot of what we call gut shot abdomen shots, you know, and it's almost impossible to save them in a in a open field, you know. They're just they're bleeding so bad, and they're they're having such horrible pain, and they're in such deep shock. And if you can get them some way bandaged up into a hospital, they might save some of them. But it's it's one of the most serious wounds. Of course, the head wounds are dead, and the but the extremities we saved all those guys with the fractured femurs and stuff. We had an interesting thing in the in the reason I couldn't get in the aid station. We had a the man who owned the farm was sitting there with a thirty caliber water cooled machine gun shooting at us. The civilian German, and he. Fractured the femur of one of our sergeants who laid out in front of him. The colonel and I and the exec laid in the ditch and watched it until somebody came up and shot him. But, see, these kind of things we couldn't do anything about. There was no way we could. We did save this guy, but after they killed the civilian, then I got to him and we got a splint on him and got him taken care of, but.
after we did the parachute jump, then that was March 45. We went down to the Ruhr Valley and fought another battle. And uh, you remember we're airborne, so we didn't have any, we had a few little jeeps, but we didn't have any big trucks, you know. So we stole school buses and farm machinery and stuff, and we moved clear into Germany. We got clear to Munster, Germany, which is quite a ways, and then they pulled us out and got us some equipment, and then we went down to the Ruhr Valley, and that was the final battle of the war. Well, then, in May, when the war in Europe ended, they reshuffled all the airborne units. There was the 82nd, the 101st, and the 17th Airborne, which I was in. And they moved the, the people with the high points. We all had point system, time and duty and decorations and so forth. And they, all the high points they sent to Berlin with the 82nd Airborne. They sent the 101st to Austria with us middle pointers. That's where I went. I was transferred to the 101st. And the people with very few points were sent home and were supposed to train and go to Asia. Well, the war ended in Asia with atomic bombs and and they were home already, and the guys who should have been home were in Berlin, and those of us in the 101st were training in Austria. Well, then they reshuffled them again, and all of us in the 101st, which were really in the 17th, went to the 82nd. We came home representing the 82nd Airborne, marched down Fifth Avenue like we were the 82nd Airborne. We were really the 17th Airborne. But we uh, we were all assigned to units, and my discharge is with the 82nd Airborne, which it shouldn't be, but that's it, it. And my brother, as I told you, was in the first division and had eight battle stars, and they tried to do that to him, and he wouldn't let them. They tried to discharge him in some unit that he didn't like, and he refused. He stayed in the first division until they until they discharged him. But after the war, I uh, tried to go back to school, and it was impossible because all the doctors who didn't go to war had, had lined up all uh, the postgraduate residencies that were available. Those of us that came home from the war had no place to go. I ended up in a, in a mining camp in Colorado, and I was the only doctor in two counties. And it was kind of like being in the paratroops because we had nine feet of snow. And when you had a compound fracture, you were the best doctor around, being the only one. And I had the same thing going there. It was awful. I had people going off Vale Pass and Loveland Pass and being smashed all to pieces at the bottom of the and did the same thing. We had one gal with a broken jaw and a broken hip and a busted spleen. And it's just the same thing over again. And it was wonderful training that I had had the hard way. And we had, you know, a lot of surgery, a lot of babies, a lot of 
real sick people, and I looked around. There was no evacuation system. In the summer, we could get them out, but in the winter, I was the only one there. and It was pretty tough duty, but it, it, you asked if I had learned anything from the medical training. Absolutely. It was, I don't know what I'd done if I hadn't done that kind of training. Those, those are big counties up there and a lot of people and a, a lot of injuries, severe illnesses, all kinds of problems. Well, one of the f- things you, I hope you realize is that it's a great deal of satisfaction to be the only people involved in trying to save lives and trying to make people better, healthier, or even if you aren't saving their life, you know, if they've got trench feet or something, you're not saving their life, but you're improving their their life. There's a great deal of satisfaction in that, and you, you carry that pride with you forever. I do, anyway. And my men do. My, my guys that I know that when we have our reunions, you know, we're all, we're all the medics are all, respected people of the organization and the guys that had adjusted the artillery and blew up the town are not as important as we are. Maybe I exaggerate it, but that's the way I feel. And they seem to feel the same way. It's it. You're real lucky if you, if you go to war that you can be on that side of it. I volunteered for Vietnam and spent Four years there is uh, 60 day tours as a civilian. I wasn't in the military. I ran an eye clinic and did eye surgery on the civilians. Had the same kind of thing. Every morning we'd come to work and there'd be a bunch of slaughtered people laying there, busted all to pieces. And I only did the eye work because I went back to school, became an ophthalmologist. But that was a regular mass unit like I was with there. There were three three surgeons and 16 to 20 men, depending on the circumstances. They were Air Force. They were assigned to the civilian hospital, and I was assigned to them for food and shelter. And uh, they paid me $15 a day, and that cost me about $25 a day. Of course, I closed my practice and everything. I wouldn't have missed it for anything. We were in the same deal, you know, and and worse because we were inhibited all the time. That I wasn't, but the the military was inhibited. They weren't allowed to win it, and but uh, it was still a lot of satisfaction on trying to bring some eyesight back to some people who couldn't see. These guys were, of course, they had everything to work with, you know, that we didn't have, all the antibiotics and, and of course, the x-rays and everything that we didn't have in the field. But they were all real well-trained, and they were dedicated people. They were x-ray technicians. They were lab technicians. They were plaster cast people, you know, they they were all specialists in their own right. And the doctors were absolutely outstanding. 
There wasn't anything they couldn't do. Their cleft palate and hair lip are epidemic there. It's just all over. And these guys were absolute experts at that. When one of them would get would come over to replace somebody, he'd spend about a month overlapping, and the other guy would teach him how to do it. Man, were they good. The doctors in that group were just just like the guys in MASH, you know, there wasn't anything they couldn't do. Most of them had three years of, of residency. Most of them were well-trained, and, and the medics were well-trained, too. And I don't, I don't know where they came from, but they, I don't know how they got their training, but obviously they, they were all specialists. My guys were just rugged, tough guys, except those three or four that had special training. They were all very intelligent, but they, and of course we didn't have x-ray and we didn't have antibiotics. And To my medics, I, I wouldn't have to say anything to them, really. The two that I know, we have this bond that uh, we talk to each other once a month or so on the phone. We go over all the things we did and and all the things we saw and uh, and this is true of the whole unit, not only the medics, but the when you've been in the hole and in the snow and cold and freezing and being shot at, you have a comradeship that nobody else ever has. There's no other fraternity around that has that kind of of feeling for each other. and uh, Steve Ambrose, again, says it as well as it can be said. And I remember in Saving Private Ryan, you remember the, the guy, Ryan, was a paratrooper, and he refused to go back when they came to get him to go back. I was so proud of him because he was he was a paratrooper and he was stationed at this place to hold this bridge and he was darn well going to hold it. He felt bad about his brothers, but the which is typical of the of the unit. And it's not only paratroopers; it's rangers, it's submarines people, it's air corps people. It's you know if you if you want a bunch of men to go out and fight and kill people, you've got to make them think they're the toughest, bravest people in the world, and their unit's better than that other unit, you know, and the rangers are tougher than the paratroopers, and the paratroopers are tougher than the submariners, and the commandos are tougher than anybody, and it's something you have to do to people, and of course, this is what's so hard to take away from them when they come home, especially if somebody's going to spit on them, you know. It's pretty hard to take that away from somebody who saved his own life and the life of others because he had this attitude that nobody was as tough as he was. And it's why we have so many problems with people who have cranked back down into civilian life. People who criticize them just don't really know what's going on. It's a, it's a terrible thing to do to a human being, especially when you 
then the politicians come along and destroy what you died for, you know. That was Captain Lauren B. Morgan, MD. Thanks for listening to Warriors in Their Own Words. If you have any feedback, please email the team at kharbaugh at evergreenpodcast.com. We're always looking to improve the show. And if you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to rate and review. Warriors in Their Own Words is a production of Evergreen Podcasts in partnership with The Honor Project. Our producer is Declan Roars. Bridget Coyne is our production director, and Sean Rulhoffman is our audio engineer. Special thanks to Evergreen executive producers Joan Andrews, Michael DeAloya, and David Moss. I'm Ken Harbaugh, and this is Warriors in Their Own Words. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.